Well, that was the opening music to Soylent Green, released in 1973, directed by Richard Flesher, and starring Charlton Heston, Lee Taylor Young, Chuck Connors, Joseph Cotton, uh, Brock Peters, Paula Kelly, and, and in his last film role, Edward G. Robinson as Saul Roth. And joining us today, I want to welcome our guest, Arthur Schoolco, who is a Patreon, uh, I should say a patron at Tier 4, and uh, thanks for being with us today. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. And Arthur has uh, picked the theme and, and four movies for this month, and the first one is Soylent Green. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net. And on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash classic movie reviews. And, and again, thank you to all our patrons and uh, for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from rainy North Bend today. And uh, this is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles welcoming everyone back to Classic Movie Reviews. And a special thank you to Arthur for uh, the four films, all of which I saw as a youth. Well, the 2001 Space Odyssey, I was a little older, but the other ones I saw in the original formats in the theaters. Wonderful film. So thanks for joining us, Arthur. You're very welcome. It's really nice to be here. Um, it looks to me like a day in New England that's a little bit more like the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> from what I can see. Kind of gray, not too, not too uh, hot or cold, and maybe it's going to rain a little bit. Sounds like the Seattle area, for sure. <laughs> well. So the four films, we'll just give a quick uh, preview of that. We've got Soylent Green and 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Time Machine, and the original uh, film version of War of the Worlds, which is uh, which is such a classic. I can't wait to review that one. And Dad, you and I were talking earlier, a great double feature would be that movie and then The Blob. That would be a great driving double feature. <laughs> The, the blob is going to be on this uh, today or tomorrow. Turner Classic Movies, the original with Steve McQueen. So, yes, there's an endless supply of science fiction films. The blob, actually, in a way, I think is almost like an under-spoken about type of classic science fiction. They, people hear about it, but it's not as talked about, say, as the four ones that were chosen here. Steve McQueen, I don't think he was particularly well known when he did it. Uh, I forgot the year that he that movie came out, but I think he was not known. What was the blob, 1956 maybe? Yeah, something like that. I saw it when I was in high school. I seemed to spend all my free time in the movie theaters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you did. You saw everything in the theater. Yeah. In the theater is 2001. Uh, I, I got to see that in the theater when it was re-released. I want to say in the late 80s, maybe, but they, they played it at the Cinerama, I think, and that was amazing. Cool. I think we went to that when they remodeled the Cinerama, and we went and saw that in its beautiful vision. Yeah. yeah. Have they yet put it back in the theaters? I know they were talking about it for its uh, 50th, uh, the anniversary in uh, 18, 2000. I don't know that it happened, though. Do you know that if it did, um, the 4K or the higher quality version i don't know that i know i, I remember that. saying something about it i do a little bit of research on that but i i, I do want to say that there was something that came out uh, for that so soylent green though is the first one up and this is a really interesting movie to me there's so many different dimensions to this movie and and in some ways i feel like it's one of the more prescient like post-apocalyptic movies or apocalyptic movies from the 70s just in in terms of what actually is happening on the earth and and it, it, it could almost be sort of a forerunner to Blade Runner to me in, in some ways, uh, you know, sort of the Los Angeles before all the technology, but but right as climate change and the greenhouse effect is really taking hold of the planet. So that that to me made it really interesting to watch. Uh, it, it seems very timely as well. What made it? What made you choose this movie, Arthur? Of, of all the movies that were out there, what, what, what about you know, this one really stood out? That's a fantastic thing to say, because it has many elements to it that we know. It's the main part of the of the experience of seeing it: the ecology, the overpopulation, this lack of history, a lack of accordance to the past, 
and a longing for it. We see in one of the characters in particular and a lack of knowledge about it uh, for others. Um, Charlton Heston shows that one the most. The acting to me is absolutely fantastic from every main character, even the side ones, uh, not just because of their great name, but just the, the quality level of what they do. But to me, with all that being shown in this movie, all of those are a subset underneath one bigger part, and that is the government control. The apocalyptic side of it, to me, you see these characters are living in a society and life that they do, they're absolutely, if they have any resistance to what is the mainstream, they can be killed, and they will be. But I think the, the, un, the, the overcurrent theme is maybe not necessarily something that people look into. I thought it was well executed, too. The idea, the execution, also... T tender scenes. I mean, I thought I thought the, the, the relationships of the characters is, is extremely interesting on all levels. The, the dynamic that they set up between, uh, well, in, in particular, Charlton Heston's character, who is uh, Detective Thorne, and then is it Cheryl, who's played by Lee Taylor Young, who is quote unquote the furniture, um, <laughs> is is that's a whole another like element to this movie, which is the, in this future the role that women play is, is so demeaned and siloed into j just a piece of property, really. I mean, it's, it's a form of slavery, I would say. I think so. I agree. I think it is, yeah. Bob, do you have any add, thoughts as we're... Everything that Arthur and that you said is absolutely true in my mind. But also, it's very poignant when the book, Edward G. Robinson, finally goes to his final resting place, and they have that incredible visual of what the earth was like before it was destroyed by humankind. Uh, that's very poignant, particularly since he died 12 days after this film was either made or released. And I read where Charlton Heston complimented him on how professional he was throughout this process because it was never known to the, to the crew or the cast how sick he was. So that's one that I think really gets to me. And also the fact that that film is as, is as relevant today as it was in 1973. You're very much right about that. I just wish one thing about it. Um, they chose the year 2000, was it 21 or 22? I, I just kind of wish that they went another 85 to 90 years up. The reason why, that way it gives the audience as many, many years to watch for it's the future, you know, and, or maybe even a whole hundred years plus the amount that they had done, 150 years. That's, they don't tend to do that, I guess, in most of these movies. They tend to go closer. Um, same thing with, um, Matt had mentioned, uh, Blade Runner, one of the great science fiction movies. So, yeah, yeah, Blade Runner 2049, right? Like, it's, it's not that far in the future. And I guess in 1973, 2022 must have felt like a forever, you know, time into the future. But here we are, it's 2020. And, it, it, in some ways, it's even more relevant, and I, I totally agree with you, Arthur, about the government control aspect of this. And, and in some ways, it has a bit of a 1984 feel to it. The only thing that we're missing are cameras in, in their apartment, you know, watching every move that they make, the, the, you know, the thought police. But, you know, as you said, any any step outside of the norm and they could be killed, any, any sign of protest, and I think one of the iconic images of this movie is really the scoop that comes in during the riot scene. Yeah, and just oh, start scooping people yeah. into the dump truck—that's yeah. so brutal. Yeah, that scoop scene is is an important scene, um, very well executed. The Edward G. Robinson's sort of final scene in, in the movie. Um, I was just watching the movie last night, by the way, just to rewatch it again. I think I saw it maybe two weeks ago, and um, that scene—I've probably seen the movie maybe fifteen times, which is not that much for me, I guess, for these movies that I like a lot. But I have got to say. That it's his final scene in the movie that we see is one of the best you'll ever see for, for every level. And the emotions from him and the other characters who are in it, uh, Charlton Heston's one of them. Um, that one might be the one that's the the most moving for me. There's another one that's moving, and that is when they're um, having the food together. I haven't eaten like this in years. <laughs> I never ate like this. And now you know what you've been missing. As the world wants you, punk. Yeah, so you keep telling me. When I was there, I can prove it. I know. I know. 
When you were young, people were better. Oh, nuts. People were always rotten. When the world was beautiful. It's late. I gotta get to work. What have you dug up on Simonson? I've got a handful of reference work, 20 years out of date. You throw out a name and you expect a miracle. I read that that was mostly ad-libbed. They, they didn't have really, that wasn't part of the script originally. I think it was totally ad-libbed and Fleischer had added it in. It was not in the script. And the, um, Edward G. Robinson was not hearing at all, apparently. But he was so such a good actor that he learned how to time in the sequences from when seeing how the scene played out once. And then he was able to implement his words and listen when he could understand that words were being said. And uh, it's a pretty amazing acting job. He, as an amazing actor, as we know, one of the best we ever seen. He's, a, he's just a, a gold standard actor with, you know, so many hundred, over a hundred films. And we could spend a podcast just reviewing the films that he made alone, like Double Indemnity and Key Largo and on and on. And the man was just incredible. Sorry to interrupt. You're right. He's incredible on many levels. The final scenes are a lot of the intricate scenes that he's in. And Charlton Heston and him had a very special bond in real life. Um, and it does play out in that movie. I think that Mr. Heston uh, gave a eulogy at uh, Edward G. Robinson's funeral. They were very close. You know, I saw yeah. this film in a the theater probably in 1974. And having watched it for the first time then... When they talk about the future being like 2021 or 2022, because <laughs> I was pretty young then, that seemed like a long way off. <laughs> and now it's like, wow, here we are. Yeah, I guess my thought is that if you make a futuristic movie, if you give it a lot, a lot of years, you have all these years that the audience are seeing it and it's still futuristic and their minds can go to that. Planet of the Apes would be the best example of that. I think it's supposed to be 5,000 years in the future, or more, possibly. I never and get tired of watching either one of those, that movie or, or this one, because they're just so well done. And he made, um, he made uh, these aren't the only two that he made that have that, that feel to it. Omega Man's another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fleischer himself is, you could do a festival on Fleischer. You could do a festival... With Charlton, <laughs> you could do one with Edward G. Robinson. Richard Flasher, I mean, one of my all-time favorite movies is a, is a smaller film, The Narrow Margin from 1952. <clears throat> and it show, this movie shows the breadth of his skill. He, he, did, he did films in every genre that, that I think there is. The Narrow Margin is a fantastic uh, review, by the way, too, on your channel, as well as Planet of the Apes, the 1968. Both of those movies are super movies, and I, I think you both did a fantastic job going over those films. So let's let's talk about the plot a little bit here. We've covered some of the key scenes that we like, uh, but uh, Robert Thorne, played by Charlton Heston, is a New York City police uh, detective, and he lives with uh, the book, who is played by Edward G. Robinson, and they live in this really downbeat, dilapidated apartment. And they actually do have an apartment, though, because there's people living in the stairwell and on the street. There's just so much overcrowding that a lot of people don't even have a place to live. So he's at least got a roof over his head uh, in that sense. And we also meet uh, at the beginning of the film, the character played by Lee Taylor Young, Cheryl or Cheryl, Cheryl, not quite sure. And Cheryl, I think, I think I heard her saying it on the commentary. I think they pronounced it Cheryl, like Shirley, but just plain Cheryl. Yeah. Okay. And she lives with a, a man who is really high up in the Soylent Company, who's a director in the Soylent Company, and and he's the one who has the apartment. And I'm not, can't remember who his character's name is. Sondlinson, I think, something of that nature. Simonson, yeah. Uh, William Simonson, played by Joseph Cotton. Right, there we go. Yeah. And and we, we find out that he's really guilty. He's feeling a lot of guilt about something, but we don't know quite what. And he is feeling like maybe he's kind of got to say something about what he knows. What do you want? You, Mr. Simonson. 
I knew soon. Uh, they told me to, uh, to say that they were sorry, but that you had become unreliable. That's true. They can't risk a catastrophe, they say. They're right. Then, uh, this is right? No, not right. Necessary. To who? To God. It's, it's really sweet in, in some ways how he and Cheryl have this relationship. He, she, we learn later she comes with the apartment and that's why she's called furniture. But they have a relationship and, and he's really nice to her and buys her all these things. And she's got this really cool video game that's what now looks really dated, but I'm sure at the time, you know, was very high tech. And I did read in the comments though that it would kind of make sense for her to have that technology in in this future because most of the technology has been wiped out. So any kind of technology, even this old video game, would would have been really prized. So that that kind of feeds into the whole like setup of the film. Then we find out that he Simonson is murdered, and that's where the two storylines converge. And then Detective Thorne is assigned to investigate this murder. And then everything starts to be revealed as the investigation continues. That character, Lee Taylor Young, I think that she does an amazing job. Her character is a big push as to what makes that movie for me on a much higher level. Uh, because she's interesting and you get to see a lot more from uh, the other characters who are interacting with her. I think she's, she's magnifying the story's importance with her, her feelings, emotions that she's relating regarding the person who owns her, the person that's apparently going to be owning the apartment in the future. And when she's with Heston, um, tremendously fun, fantastic scenes with, with Heston. I find it, you know, for me, when I watch that movie, I believe I'm watching something that's in this future um, concept. I mean, maybe not the year 2022, maybe more like maybe 100 years from now, but uh, potentially, although I hope not, I hope not, maybe some alternate universe, <laughs> if we're lucky. But... I don't know. Do you, I find that she really is a big addition to this movie that would have been a lot less without her in it. This is the highlight of her career, I think, this film, this role. She did other roles. She did 20, 25 other films, and she was, of course, on Peyton Place on TV, but she, yeah. was, she was distinguished in this role. And she helps move and carry the film and the storyline along because of her role and it, with so many different people. Yeah, she was... She was uh, Excellent. Yeah. I think she's one of the most relatable characters, too. She's sort of our entry into this world. It, it, I don't find Charlton Heston's character necessarily like relatable in that way, but for her, it's like, oh, I immediately connected with her. It does reveal a lot more depth to this, this society that we wouldn't have had otherwise. It, it, it says everything you need to know about the relationship between men and women, about the control aspect of the film that you mentioned, Arthur, and, and how she in some ways is okay with this arrangement because she's safe, right? She has food, she has water, she has the safety of being in the apartment. And, and that's, those things are so important in this world that most people don't have that. You know, so I, I, would, I, I really I would, love uh, her character. I would double uh, in on this because I, I, she's a messenger to uh, the current and the future. Edward G. Robinson serves that role to the past. He's got this huge resource of knowledge and experience from a time when the world was so different. So we get we get his role and his character taking us way back in time, and then she's there, and then it moves forward. So I think the script and the screenwriters and the direction just pull that off beautifully. It never gets tiring to see this film. I agree with you, Bob. I mean, I just watched it last night and I did watch it like two weeks ago, but I, I just find myself in the, in the universe that they're showing. And we know that the technology is not as, a, you know, up to what we have today. But for whatever the purpose is, a la Star Trek, original series, I find myself 
in that space and not feeling that it's not a realistic uh, thing to see wa watching it unfold um, on a big screen, a nice quality screen. I don't know. They've enhanced the, the graphics as we know, and that's going to get better. This is not even a four, you know, close to the highest um, type of uh, thing that we could be seeing for that movie. They haven't fully, you know, made it 4K, so it can get even better. Um, well, and, and, and just from a technical standpoint, some of those matte paintings, when they show outside of the apartment and, the, and, and there's that scene where the, the, the thug is, is kind of climbing over the fence to get into the apartment at the beginning, that looks very well done. And it gives you a sense of sort of the environment around the apartment. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it does hold up well and it does present a very compelling vision of, of the future. Um, as this, as 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 the investigation gets underway, we meet Chuck Connors plays Tab Fielding. Anyway, he's the bodyguard of uh, William Simonson and uh, was out shopping with Cheryl when this murder happened. And uh, his character plays a much larger role as the plot unfolds. Right away, Thorne thinks that there's something else going on. It's not just a robbery because nothing was taken. So you finally made it. Do you know what time it is? You tell me, you're the one who's got to watch. I can't. The damn thing won't run. Let me see it. Maybe I can fix it again. Huh. Okay. Well, let's see. Matheson murder. And he's in Philadelphia. Out of our jurisdiction. His wife's been alive. Well, we'll pick her up if we can find her. Her sign. Uh, Zolitnikov. I'm working on it. Which means you still haven't got a damn thing. How old is Solroth now? He's doing all right. He's had it. It's time for you to get another book. I'll make arrangements. No. Sooner or later. Not now. Well, it's your job. Simonson. Supposed to look like he was killed when he caught some punk burglarizing his apartment. Well, what do you say? It was an assassination. Just like that? One, the alarm system was out of order for the first time in two years. Two, the bodyguard was conveniently out shopping. Three, the punk didn't take anything. And four, the punk was no punk. He used a meat hook instead of a gun to make it look like a punk. What did you take? Everything I could lay my hands on. Well, what's for mother? One bill for me, 50 for Kulizik, 50 for you. 10 for Wagner from your end. Simonson must have been big. How big? Enough for Chelsea Towers West. Who did the inside work? For my money, it's the bodyguard. What about the furniture? Like grapefruit. <laughs> you never saw grapefruit. You never saw her? Come on, shove. You know what I really think, Lieutenant? What? I think it's really busted this time. And I really like the way Brock Peters played that character. I thought he was also very believable. Oh, he was fantastic. Chuck Connors was fantastic. I mean, he has this scene with uh, <laughs> the other Chuck, <laughs> and they're good friends, um, but they, you know, they, they can do a lot uh, uh, in those scenes. You get the sense that there's, there's a lot of murders happening. There's a lot, of, there's a lot on their plate at the police station, and, and Brock, our chief hatcher just wants to kind of get this taken care of. Closing the Simonson case. What the hell you say? You heard me. The Simonson case is officially closed. Felonious assault. Signed. Yesterday, you agreed it was assassination. There have been 137 reported murders since then, and we won't solve them either. I'm not going to falsify that report. Oh? Got a suspect? Well, I've got leads. <laughs> Look, this isn't some murder you scratch at for 24 hours and forget. 
I told you there's been a tail on me. Something stinks here. Look, you sign this and I'll bury it. Like hell you will. A member of the board of directors of the Soylent Corporation was torn apart with a meat hook. You can't sweep that carcass under the rug. Who bought you? You're bought as soon as they pay you a salary. Now, who's they? High and hot, and they want this case closed permanently. Their way. Now, you sign this. You sign it! If my name closes this case and somebody higher and hotter wants to know why, it's my job. Sign it. I'll cover for you. I won't put my job in the line for you, Hatcher. Well, not my damn job! Yeah. Then he says that to Detective Thorne, you know, Charlton Heston's character. And at this point, uh, Thorne is, is invested and he, he feels like there's no, there's a lot more going on here. Why was the director of the Soylent Company murdered? You know, and he gets these two books. He takes these two books from the apartment. They're oceanographic surveys from the Soylent Company. And he doesn't, he's, he doesn't know how to read them, but he gives them to the book. Uh, again, played by Edward G. Robinson, and Edward G. Robinson starts to read over these these things, and and you you get the idea that you know there's a whole other subplot happening here that we're not aware of yet. So then, Thorne returns to Chelsea Towers, which is the apartment where Cheryl lives and where the murder happened, and to question her again. But I think he also is going back there because there's food there and there's liquor there and he wants to see Cheryl again. <laughs> you know, so. Can't blame him for that. <laughs> Can't really blame him for that. And he and Cheryl spend the night together after she sort of convinces him to stay for breakfast because she's got, you know, eggs and, and like all this really good food. And there's an interesting dialogue between the two of them there where she's convincing him to stay and what really pushes them over the edge is the fact that she's got a hot shower. It's still dark. You could stay a while. You could wash up. I'll make you breakfast. Why should you? There's plenty of food in the refrigerator. Charles wouldn't dare make trouble for you now. I got work. I don't want to be alone. I'm frightened when I'm alone. There's nothing I can do for you, furniture. I got nothing to give. The new tenant is coming to look over the place. He may not want me. <laughs> well, I got a place, but it's nothing like this. This is like my home. I've been here a long time. You could take a shower and let the water run as long as you like. down afterwards. All right. You turn that air conditioner on. All the way. All the way up. We'll make it cold like winter used to be. What about breakfast? Anything you like. Strawberries. An egg. No, strawberries. Oh, well, I've never seen strawberries. All right, an egg then. Who the hell needs strawberries? <laughs> he hasn't had a hot shower in so long. <laughs> I just wondered what the what what he smelled like, you know? Like, what's the smell of this city? I think it must be really right. <laughs> she she definitely had to like him in a very genuine way because he, he was working and, you know, sweating and not having any showering at all, apparently, for who God only knows how long, maybe for all his life. Oof. Tough. Worse than the Old West, at least there they had Saturday night baths. <laughs> yeah, that would have been tough, the Old West. I think so. Um, I think that would have been tougher, too. Cheryl reveals something to Thorne here that uh, that Williamson had gone to his priest and had, had talked to him and had been going to this church. And so Thorne decides to pay a visit to this Catholic church, and we... That's another really interesting scene, the inter the interaction between Thorne and the, the priest. 
uh, played by Lincoln Kilpatrick. Thorn, Father, 14th Precinct. My name is Paul. Have I done something? No, I'm investigating the murder of Mr. William Simonson. Who do you say? Simonson. Quite an important man, a rich man. I have no recollection. You talked to him? Did I? No doubt about it. A rich man. Yes, I remember. We don't see rich people here anymore. There isn't even enough room for the poor. Just too many. Far too many. But my memory's eroded. Chiefly, I assign space to people who need space. Do you need some space? I need to know what he said to you. Are you sure he's dead? Yes. Really dead? He's dead. What did he talk to you about? We'll come back tomorrow. I'm very tired now. Father. Father, did you hear his confession? There should be a requiem mass, but there's no room. Should I make room? This is very important. I can't help you. Forgive me. It's destroying me. What is the truth. The truth Simonson told you? All truth. What is it? What did he confess? Sweet Jesus. He's just so overwhelmed, and he, he just seems like he's in a daze, like he, he's, he's not even really in his body. He's just sort of going through the motions. It's, it's very well acted. Catatonic exhaustion is how it's described, <laughs> which is so apt. Well, the heat, I think it makes sense the way he's doing it, because I think when you have that kind of heat and the constant uh, feeling and there's no, you know, there's no winter <laughs> and the humidity is up, it, you, you do lose your energy. You, you become, uh, you know, it's just nothing uh, that they're, <laughs> I don't think that they can even feel like it's normal. You're getting used to it. It's probably always something that's just very downtrodden in how they're going to feel, and their day is going to be lesser. They're not going to be getting, say, well, it just happens all the time, so we're fine with it. I don't think that's what they were showing, and I, I think that makes sense. Well, I had another thought. I wondered what both of you thought about this. I, I think he was also, I think it pushed him over the edge when he learned what was really going on, because he was, I think he's the one who took the confession from Williamson. And I think that when he actually knew, he actually knew what was happening, that it was too much for him and it kind of broke him. I was wondering what you thought about that hypothesis. I think that makes sense, actually. I think it makes a lot of sense. It was more than he could comprehend. And, and just given the circumstances of where he was living and 40 million people in, crammed in that city. It's supposed to be, what, uh, Los Angeles or New York? We're not sure. 40 million people is... Uh... New York, 40 million people in New York, yeah. Yeah, just in the city of New York, yeah. It feels like that sometimes. <laughs> Especially during the heat of the summer, I bet. Yeah, right, uh, on the subway. Uh, so Thorne is uncovering more evidence about what's going on. He goes back, this is where he goes back to his chief to say, hey, you know, we, we need to really figure out what's going on here. And his chief tells him to drop it and, and assigns him to uh, riot duty. And apparently that's like the worst kind of duty that you could get. He's not happy about that. And then we get that amazing scene in the square where they're supposed to be distributing Soylent and they run out. And the, him and his buddy have this whole discussion about how they've got to prepare for the riot that they know is coming. Out of the damn green. Idiots. 
Some foul up a transport. This crowd will blow. I know. Got the scoop standing by, but I don't know if they can even handle this. When are you going to make the announcement? As soon as I get up the nerve. About five minutes, I guess. Better pass the word. Right. This is the police. This is the police. This is the police. I'm asking you to disperse. The supply of soil and green has been exhausted. You must evacuate the area. The scoops are on their way. The scoops are on their way. Yeah, that scene with the scoop. I was I was amazed at the act. You know the the stunt. Apparently, they were all stuntmen doing the real stunt. It looks so real. I thought somebody's going to get hurt. Did people get hurt? I mean, it was so well done. It looks like they would have been, but the commentary seemed to indicate. I heard a commentary. Uh, Fleischer and uh, Lee Taylor Young, I think, were the two main people on it. And I think that uh, the d director did say that no one was hurt, that they, he, they used real people and that it was not causing uh, major harm. I mean, that's it's pretty impressive. That's, that's how good they are. Yeah, that's amazing. Such a, such a, such a great scene. Um, and this is also where the bodyguard, uh, Tab Fielding, played by Chuck Connors, uh, makes an attempt on Thorne's life and uh, he gets wounded. Um, I think, isn't this where that happens or was that earlier? Um, where Thorne gets wounded? Yeah, Thorne gets wounded here, but earlier there was a, I think Tab tried to tried to take Thorne out. He did, he did. Yeah, because the next scene is back in Tab's uh, apartment and we meet uh, Tab's girlfriend, Martha, played by Paula Kelly. And there was a really subtle bit of acting there where she's eating something and 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 she's panicked about leaving the spoon out on the table and she tries to hide it before thorn can come in but she doesn't have time and and you wonder like well what what was that about was it drugs uh, but we find out that it was just strawberry jam <laughs> yeah i remember that yeah that actress did a fantastic job and of course we i think it's the scene um Charlton Heston has the fight scene with Tab, you know, the character of Thorne, and we see them later. And, of course, that's a very uh, powerful scene. <laughs> it's a dramatic scene. But, again, you, you, by this point, I'm realizing that anybody that's living in an apartment has a lot of money, you know, has, is in the upper echelons of, of, the, of the society. Um, you know, they might not have a lot of money compared to Williamson, who's living in that, that other apartment, but... Uh, just having a, a place to live was a big deal. Um, we then find out that the book has uh, gone to meet the other books. And so there's this, there's this whole, I guess it would have been called a library, you know, during our time. But it, it, then it was like this secret society of books where they have all these, uh, yeah, books that they're keeping track of. And, and apparently books have become something of a real rare commodity in this future. And he wants them to take a look at this oceanographic survey and they realize that they've got to, they've got to sound the alarm of what's really going on. Um, and they, they want to, they want to, you know, contact the higher ups within the government, I guess, or some kind of, I wasn't clear to me who they were going to talk to, but they, they definitely talked about sounding the alarm. With the books in that book club scene, Edward G. Robinson, where he's meeting with uh, all the women. Yeah, really fascinating how they just got together and they had this discussion. It was almost like the secret society. Yeah, and I think Edward G. Robinson's reaction, I think within a short time from that scene, he sort of has this very, very down feeling. I mean, not that they're not having issues prior to that, but it's a, it's a precursor to what we see later. If you haven't fine. seen the movie, hit pause on the podcast now. Go watch it. Come back. Pick it up here because uh, there's a couple of things at the end that are just some of the best things in cinema, in my opinion. Uh, the one is the suicide facility where we kind of touched oh, on this yeah. earlier. And 
I mean, that that brings tears to my eyes. And, and, and that was some really amazing acting, both by Edward G. Robinson and uh, Charlton Heston, because I think Charlton Heston was crying in that scene as well, because he sneaks into this facility to watch what's happening uh, to his best friend, like his father figure, really. And he, he knows that, that Thorne is there. You know, the book knows that Thorne is there. And they're there together when, when he has his final moments on this earth. Stop. Can you hear me? Paul? Yes. Thank you for coming. Oh, dear God. I've lived too long. No. I love you, Thornton. I love you so. Did you see it? Yes. Isn't it beautiful? Oh, yes. I told you. How could I go? How could I? How could I ever imagine? Like you said, Dad, or, or Arthur, I can't remember, uh, that film that they show of the Earth before the ecological disaster that happened is really moving and really makes you appreciate what we have, you know, in, in our world right now. You know what, Matt, I think I can add something to the scene, to your liking of it. I, if you don't know this, I didn't know it either. I, I, I have uh, a copy, but I just hadn't listened to the comments. Uh, the director, Richard Fleischer, said that what you see, you see Edward G. Robinson having uh, emotions and feelings. He reacts to what you're seeing on the screen. But that's not what he saw on the screen. He saw nothing. He acted to create reactions. And they, they told him. So you, he didn't see anything. He, it was all his creation. And then they put the scenes in after with some stock photos and motion pictures, you know, with the meadows and the brooks and really great stuff. What that does, that speaks volumes about Edward G. Robinson's ability that he could do that, because I, I didn't know that. I bet you, I bet you, you show that movie that, I, there's, I would have never suspected that he was not seeing or having the reaction from some entity. That's just amazing. Um, and we should mention, too, the Planet of the Apes, like I said, is a fantastic movie, and you did re 
view, view it. Um, I forgot what number, but uh, Edward G. Robinson was uh, was going to actually he was the one that they wanted to do to play Doctor Zayas, but the makeup was six years earlier. It was just too much for him. He just putting on makeup for eighteen hours. Couldn't deal with it. I don't blame him. I don't think I could hack it uh, at eighteen or twenty. It's just too too hot, too whatever. He said I can't do it. He tried. And uh, he did some screen testing. They worked together for like a month, uh, they said, or something like that, maybe more, uh, in the production, pre-time pre of, of that production time. And it just, he said, I can't do it. The guy who did the Zayas was fantastic, but Forever G was just, it's too bad. I think he would have been nice. I wish they could have given him another human character. That was, they could have added him to the human level. I wish that they did that, because he would have been fantastic in that movie. Yeah. In the compound there, in the ape compound, yeah, that would have been good. After that scene, Thorne is is kind of going rogue a little bit, I would say, because he's been ordered to off this case, but he still wants to find out what's going on. And 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 there's a little there's a little bit of a hint there that Saul Roth, again, that's Edward G. Robinson, the book, tells him about something that's going on and that you need to go check it out. And so there's a hint that there's still more that's going on that we don't know about. Thorn jumps in the back of one of these uh, dump trucks that's taking the bodies away from the suicide facility and, 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 and rides it out to one of these factories out in the desert somewhere and is able to sneak into the factory and, and uncovers the, tr the real truth about where Soylent is made. And, and I had a question for both of you. It's, the movie's called Soylent Green, but I'm wondering if all the different ty types of Soylent were made from, and here's the reveal, from people. You know, the, all this food that they were eating was coming from dead bodies, and the oceans were basically dead at that point. What, what do you think about that? Is the question, was Soylent always a dead body product? Like, it didn't matter what it was? It, no, if maybe at some point it had been based off of plankton and, and, and food from the ocean, but at this point in, in the world, all of the food, all the soylent food is coming from dead bodies. That's what I thought. That That's the reveal that's just overcomes, you know, uh, Charlton, <laughs> so to speak, you know, or um, Thorn. Um, but I, I, yeah, so you're, you're, you're asking whether or not maybe that that was for how long it had been people or that just we have to assume that uh, it had been for many, many years. When I first started watching the movie, I thought it was just soylent green that was, that was people and that like the soylent red and soylent blue maybe was still coming from the ocean. But then as I started thinking about it, it didn't make sense. Like I was then realizing that no, all of the soylent product was from dead people. I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Cause there was nothing, they, there was no other way to do it. Everything else had been killed off. And to the humor level, you know, the, the great line, Soylent Green is behind. You know, it just wouldn't have sounded nearly as good if he said, Soylent is behind. <laughs> it's, it's got a lot more ring with the word green to it, which I'm sure was, you know, I'm not sure. I, I would wonder to know where that, you know, if, if they understood that that was going to become a special line. Um, of course, at the end of the Planet of the Apes, Charlton Heston also has some of the fantastic lines that are iconic even before that. So he, he has a good habit of being iconic. Oh, I tell you, I, I did find that uh, the, the group that they wanted to report this to was called the Council of Nations. Ah, Whatever okay. that might be. That was a, like the United Nations. Probably like a United Nations uh, equivalent idea, yeah. So um, there's another little bit of line at the end of that. Not only the, the great famous line is, They're making our food out of people. Next thing they'll be breeding us like cattle. For food, you gotta tell him. You gotta tell him. Promise, Tiger. I promise. I'll tell the exchange. You tell everybody. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. Silent Green is people. We gotta stop him somehow. But there's also a line that says they'll they'll just turn us into cows. They'll they'll turn us into cattle. And I kind of thought maybe that had already happened and he just wasn't really aware of it. You know, like the, the way people were living and the way that they were just persisting uh, without any kind of hope for the future, they they had almost been turned into cows at that point. Yeah. I remember seeing this in the theater in 1974 and that that final act was, was putting it mildly, a shock. Having never seen it before, you know, that was the <laughs> so first that the time whole... I was like, what a you what were, a surprise! 
you were in shock. Did you get the feeling that maybe everybody else was too, not just your audience group, but other people around the same time that would watch it, you know, the days before and the days after? Oh, yeah. Well, it was one of those things, Arthur, you've been in a theater and people will be, you know, maybe visiting before it starts and then it gets quiet. Well, when everybody left the theater after this movie, nobody was talking about anything. It was like we were we were leaving a funeral. Dazed and confused. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Once again, immersed in that universe. You just—they were immersed. They were—they were there. Exactly. Yeah, it took me quite a while to get over that. It was just so overwhelming. And given the time, you know, 1973, it's like it made it even more surprising. <clears throat> this was anyway. right during the oil crisis, right? There was a lot of concern about the oil and, and what that was oh, doing, yeah. and long lines to get gas, and yeah. Oil crisis was happening, um, warming trends. You know, there's a lot going on. Watergate, you name it. Watergate was happening then. Famines in, in various parts of the world, I think. And the poorer nations. So it was, they had, they had things that were exigent at the moment, but they also would, would show it being even in a worse off way, I suppose. Matt, you and I went to see uh, the Manchurian Candidate when it was re-released. <clears throat> I think it was in the 80s. And the ending of that has the same effect on me. You just, I leave the theater like stunned. The original yeah. uh, Manchurian Candidate from the 60s. Another great film, yeah. Uh, so let's do our reviews, um, or our rating. Um, so, Arthur, do you want to go first? You know, yeah, it's a, that's a, I would say I'm going to say it nine. I th it's not that it's not fantastic, but there's something about watching it that makes me just wish that we saw a little bit more of the connection points. Um, I mean, The Soil and Greenest People is a great dramatic end, but I just wish he could have been meeting up with Cheryl, something additional to see them going strong at the end of it <laughs> like you said it has that sort of like your your that wasn't their intention but somehow i it's not that you still couldn't be bleak if you saw that you can still be bleak if they have each other at least some sort of you you know there's going to be something tied up good amongst all the, the wicked problems happening to them in that universe it's it's probably one of those things where I say nine because of that, but on a given day, I might not think about that. And then it's, it's a, you know, <laughs> it's not even, you know, there as a thought. I'll go next. I, I am right at a nine as well. And, and for similar reasons, I wish that we had seen a little bit more of the world outside of his apartment or outside of that other apartment or, you know, or the police station. And we did get that great scene in the square with the riot. And we get some scenes of him kind of sneaking through streets at night. Um, but, you know, the, the thing I love about Blade Runner is, that, is one of those scenes where he just sits down and has noodles. And he's just kind of like out in the environment. And, we, and there's a lot, there's, there's a few scenes in that movie as well where like the bicyclists drive, you know, bike by. And it's just sort of this environment that we start picking up on more. And I wanted a little bit more of that in this movie. And I can see, Arthur, an ending to this movie kind of like Blade Runner. I don't want to draw too many conclusions or parallels here, but where he and Cheryl meet up at the end and, and then it's like the closing, you know, uh, the closing scene where like, well, okay, what are they going to do now? Kind of a thing. Yeah. But it is just so bleak at the end. It, 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 like you said, Dad, it's almost like leaving a funeral. <laughs> it's well, a de uh, desperate uh, situation. My, yeah. my rating on it is a 10. Uh, and oh, it's, wow. it's, it's really influenced by having physically been in the theater with maybe 200 people when you see that ending. And I just, I, I was in shock. So I, wow. I, if, if, cool. it doesn't, it doesn't, it still resonates with me, but that first time I saw it was just, it stuck in my head. And I just think it was the, the, the perfect way to end that because I left that theater thinking, my God, we're, we're all doomed. So I, I go with a 10. I, it, Arthur, you, you one time had a film that you gave a 15 to. I toyed with that, but I, I decided to stop it. You know, I, I, think, I think for the idea and the execution and the importance of, of the acting, it kind of is there too. I'm, I, I'm probably just being nitpicky by saying 9 out of 10 in my own way. I'm one of those people that probably forgive, uh, 
doesn't hamper the film, even if I thought a few things could have been changed. Um, I still can give it the super high. So it it's a 9 to 10. I suppose that the, the very best way to look at it, a 9 to 10. 9, 9.5, where it's that little bit of thought process as to, well, maybe we could have just had a little bit more of them together. In the desperation, I think the key thing is you have the desperation, not changed. But you have the desperation, and he's being you know taken off, and he's saying things. And she ends up being there somehow. And she's desperate, but they have each other. So up next, we're going to do, I think it's 2001. And uh, yeah, I've seen that movie a dozen times at least. And can't wait to watch it again. So that'll be coming up next. And then uh, Matt, Time Matt, Machine. Matt, sorry to interrupt, Matt. I, was just, I, uh, I realize you'll do it again. I'm sorry to interrupt. But 2001, I just wanted to make one comment. And uh, I know you're going to be talking about that film. But the thought that I had, I just wanted to interject this because maybe you might expand on this when you talk about it, you know, um, Bob and you. But that movie to me, there's, that movie to me, of all movies I've ever seen, to me is the number one example of a movie that you see by yourself, alone. And it's actually, I think it enhances it. And that's my, my theory is that many people were doing that because they had the opportunity with videotape. And that resurgence of the interest, something about that movie just d does better, I think, in concept. You just watch it alone. You don't have your, your mind is completely fixed on what is happening in front of you. And I feel like I'm in a, a pod out in space watching this unfold. And by the way, a, a neat comment. I do believe I, I do believe astronauts have said that the most accurate account of space is that movie. And of course, it's in high tech 4K now. But I do believe that comment had been made about that film. Yeah, and I would be curious too, the family, Matt, too, as well. You know, you're, you're, uh, I would be curious to hear what their reactions were to Soylent Green and 2001. Those are two really interesting ones. I think that would be an interesting thing to hear. I did watch 2001 with uh, my older daughter and her boyfriend, and they really, really liked it. And, but, you know, it, it's it kind of a slow build at the beginning. And I think they were kind of wondering, like, what the heck are we watching? Mm -hmm. uh, but then once once it gets going, it really sucks you in. So I think uh, oh, that'll be kind of it'll be fun to talk about. Absolutely. If you come into that movie cold well, and you have no idea what you're watching, it's 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 the cinematography and the movie, the music will draw you into it. And then once it gets going, the story will. But it it is pretty out there. I think coming into it cold, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And uh, War of the Worlds, another one that, you know, maybe we've had more preparation for. I think War of the Worlds um, is a little bit more something that's in the, the mindset of people who haven't seen these type of movies. Um, so it's, I think you're right, 2001 is the most, in a way, it's a, it's a different type of uh, type of approach to science fiction. Very, very different. And, and Star Trek was influenced. As a matter of fact, I think they did get the same. Someone who worked on the either the effects or related made that happen. If you watch that movie like you have in the last year or so, we did it. it it's you can see the influence. You know all the visual scenes, uh, ensemble scenes, and yeah, yeah. Soundtrack was award winning too. So that's uh, another good. Yeah. Well, we'll get into all that in the next episode. So. All right. All right, Arthur. Well, thank you for another great month of movie selections and for joining us today and we really appreciate all your support and your great comments are, are excellent for this episode as well so thank you thank you very welcome glad to be part of it you too you too bob look great uh, glad we could do this glad i can chat on it so thank you again do you Bye. want to do the closing map or stand oh closing? great <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's right we almost forgot Great, and that's our review of Soylent Green and coming to you from North Bend. This is Matt. This is Arthur. So glad to be part of this great show. And Bob here in Los Angeles wishing everybody happy movie watching.